Welcome back to the Time for Heroes podcast. Right, on the podcast this week, I've got Declan Welsh of Declan Welsh and the Decadent West due to release their second album um, next week, the 27th of October. As well as that, in the bag, they've got their first album, Cheaply Bought and Expensively Sold, and lots and lots of EPs and singles out there on Spotify for people to go and listen to. But before we, we touch on the, the new album, we'll get right back to the start, really, and what life is like for a young Declan Welsh growing up. Um, yeah, i happy to be on a podcast, just not. Uh, so, growing up, very suburban, Probably like the more. I don't like using working class as like a signifier of identity. Like I'm, um, you know, I, I I think it's a relationship. So like we're all working class unless you own your own bit. Unless you own a massive business, you're working class. But I would say when we think suburban, less leafy and more ash pitches. Do you know what I mean? Like that kind yeah. of sort of. And it was any so any school bride mostly was in the same house. I think we was a couple of different wee flats before I was about four years old. And about four, we moved into the house in UK that I ended up staying in until I moved out. And only child of divorced parents, both close with both of them, have a sister later in life, but grew up an only child. So I guess that maybe explains the need to be on stage and be yeah. <laughs> to show off or something. But very happy. I think. I think the main thing I would say is that we went through spells where financially we were pretty good. We went through spells where financially we were pretty bad, but always very loving, always very supportive up to this day as well. Just two incredibly supportive parents that you, you just never doubt love you and think you're great and think you should do what makes you happy. So super lucky in that regard. Like, like I, I think I think one of the things that you see, obviously like material conditions will affect your life more than anything else. And, um, you can have the worst parents in the world and grow up rich, and I think you can still end up living a pretty decent life. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, if you're anything short of minted, the difference that just parents that really care about you or or or, or have the skills to communicate that they care about you. Do you know what I mean? Like, most parents yeah. care about their kids. Most parents love their kids, but a lot of parents just don't have the the skills or the or the communication skills, or or, or they find out too late how to do it. I, I was. I just can't speak highly enough of particularly my mum and my, my dad as well. I love my dad. I've got the best dad in the world, but because my mum did the majority of the work bringing me up, I always feel like she deserves just that wee bit extra credit. Do you know what I mean? But um, two great parents. I, I, I tell them it's good until you're about 14. East Kilbride, really fun. All, all you care about is playing football and yeah. getting sweets. Then you're great. Go to the shop, go play football. There's about a thousand pitches. Um, as soon as you hit 15, 16, 14, 15, 16, you're down the centre, and the centre is a shopping centre, formerly Europe's biggest shopping centre. It makes me think of that Father Ted quote. Ireland's, it was Ireland's biggest lingerie section, I understand. It was formerly Europe's <laughs> biggest shopping centre, I understand. Um, just to uh, give you an indication of the small wins that our town celebrated so much. Um, but yeah, we just would go down there and sit at like KFC or Subway or whatever. For like yeah. six hours talking, um, there was a, there's a skating rink. It's a weird thing. Because because you grew up there, you don't think this is a weird thing. But to everyone who isn't from East Kilbride, the fact that everyone that they know from East Kilbride can like competently ice skate is quite weird. 
Like every everybody everybody can kind of skate, and because it's because there's an ice rink there, and that's just what people did when they were younger. So we'd go up with skating, and uh, and then after that, sort of became about more house parties and stuff. Uh, there was a Glen he drank down he went and got a two litre bottle of cider yeah and I, I was just going to them didn't I aye and like there's no drunk like two litres of cider when you're 15 drunk like that that's like a psychedelic experience that's like a yeah. that's like a uh, how people describe taking DMT in their 20s and 30s is the effect that <laughs> a two litre strong bro can have in your le- revelatory um, so it just was sort of about keeping yourself busy because there was, unlike comparable towns that I see, like, for example, Paisley, who I have, like, friends in and have spent a good bit of time in, Paisley seems to be quite, <clears throat> one, historical, like, it's, it's been about for longer than East Kilbride, and two, people seem to quite, like, be proud of Paisley and quite, like, I don't know anybody for East Kilbride, apart from, like, all people say about East Kilbride is it's good to raise kids in, which I think is definitely true. It's got right. a bunch of things, got a bunch of things for kids. That, and if you're wanting to keep your kid busy, it's a good place. But I think as soon as you're a young adult, or even approaching a young adult, you, you, a lot of my friends anyway, and myself included, were like, right, um, I need to get, I need to get somewhere where there's just a wee bit more happening. But I, I definitely think, as with everywhere, absence does make the heart grow fonder, and I definitely have like a much, like a very fond opinion of East Kilbride now. Whereas maybe at fifteen, sixteen, I wouldn't have. But I guess that's just growing up a bit, realizing that the town that you're from does have quite a significant impact on you. Um, but yeah, I think it's one of those places where it makes you kind of outward looking. A lot of the songwriters from Musical Bride, unlike, for example, people from like proper council estates. So like, if you think about the band we're on tour with the ratings, people with like Jerry Cinnamon, even Arctic Monkeys' first album, an extent, like these are the stories of people from council estates. Uh-huh. The writers that you see from East Kilbride, because East Kilbride, East Kilbride obviously has council estates, but it's not like a scheme, do you know what I mean? It's like a suburban town. It's much more outward looking, so it's got a much more, like, if you look at, like, Jesus and Mary Chain, Aztec Camera, they're, they're like, kind of more, like, I don't know, Jarvis Cockery type writing, where you're, like, in the in sort of glass looking in, and... I would say I'm def. I definitely feel more like that. That it was more of a people watching a place than a sense of community place. Everybody felt quite like it didn't feel like you were part of something the way that I think it feels that like you're part of something if you're from, for example, I, I'm. I live quite close to Govan Hill. Govan Hill gets quite a hard, hard time, but the people that are in Govan Hill, I think, feel that part of a community. And yeah. I think it's the same for places like Castle Milk and stuff. Whereas in East Kilbride, from my experience, anyway. It's not really got that thing going for it. It's got loads of other things going a, for it. It's a new town, isn't it? That's Aye. the same as kind of Livingston in West Cumbernauld, Livingston, all these places. Which is funny, obviously, because both are probably famous for their, their amount of roundabouts. Yes, uh, very much so. Texas have got a song called Parliament City, don't they? I think it's good. Uh-huh. But obviously, both these areas, like, like Highlighting East Kilbride and Livingston, like West Slovene, where there's all these bands have came for these scenes. Like if you look at yourself and obviously the Lapels and the, the bands that were out at that time, Spires as well, Fogs. There's a bunch mm-hmm. of them. There was a band November. Was it November Lights or something? I think they were for there as well. Yeah, there's, there's yeah. always been a bunch of really decent bands, and same with West Slovene. And it's not mm-hmm. Mark Sharp, Louis Capaldi. Yeah, so it must be something to do with the roundabouts that, that 
that brings out such decent bands. Just gives yeah. you an extra 30 seconds every single turn to try and think about the world, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, how early on did you, were you interested in music and how early on did you know that it, it was going to be a path that you were going to go down? I was thinking about this actually because I was on a there was a, an interview we were doing and they asked us to pick some songs and I was trying to think of the first like thing the, the sort of musical awakening the first time you were like I like music that isn't just what my parents put on and don't get me wrong my mum and dad had quite good taste in music so there was lots of like interesting tunes that meant that like I sang a lot because my mum sings but it was probably like the Killers album Hot Fuss was the first time I can remember I think I was like. Uh, 10, 11, something like that and I can remember being like what the hell is this listening to uh, Smile Like You Mean It like just, you know the songs where you hear it and you just keep just skipping back to the start listening to it, skip back yeah. to the start listening to it again and, it's and a, then, I mean, that's an album full of singles as well isn't it? every song oh, in that could be a single and and like the closer as well Everything Will Be Alright is just this song that I I, I it was the t- one that it took me the longest to get into. It's a bit like, um, oh man, what's that really slow tune on Favourite Worst Nightmare? It's not If You Were There Beware. It's not... The one that anyway, 505? It's not 505, but there's another There's another one. There's a really slow tune on Favourite Worst Nightmare, but anyway, I'm forgetting the name of it now. But yeah. they were this, the, the, kind of, the kind of songs that just like, when you're young, take you a bit longer because you want the 100 mile an hour. Somebody told me you know, mm-hmm. uh, Brian Storm tune, which are both still great, but Everything Will Be Alright on The Killer's first album, I think has remained forever one of my favourite songs since I first listened to it, and it might be the longest running of my favourite songs. Um, so that was the first time I was interested in a type of music. Then I just became obsessed with guitar music, I became obsessed with just anything fully indie, alt-rock, so like bands that I was really obsessed with at various points in my young life were like Franz Ferdinand, Arctic Monkeys, Muse, uh, Queens of the Stone Age, Rage Against the Machine, um, but yeah, like just a bunch of different stuff. But the, and then I was in a band in high school. We so the bassist in the current band, me and him have been in every band we've ever been in together. Um, mm. and me and Ben were in a, a band in high school with two of our still best mates, Chris and Callum, and Daryl, the bassist too. A, a lovely guy, but we just don't keep in touch with him as much. Um, but we we were like a kind of alt rock rap metal type thing right i say rap right because because i wasn't singing i i, I kind of what i do now when i do songs like lull and permanency that's sort of what i was doing speaking rapping whatever you want to call it i'm white in fiscal bride so i find it you know cringe to say that i'm rapping but maybe that's just you know the the scottish cultural cringe coming through and i need to go over that mm. um but the uh that was really like a hobby that we then found out we were quite good and particularly the thing that was highlighted when I was younger was like performance, like that I had like a bit of stage presence and a bit of charisma. I was good at commanding an audience. I loved being on stage. I kind of felt that. I felt that I was good at it. But at the end of high school, I, we all kind of went, like I did. I went to uni, so did the drummer. Uh, I think Ben and Chris might have taken on apprenticeships and stuff. So the band didn't have enough time. The band kind of split up. And I maybe went a year or two without doing anything. And then two of my mates gave me a Billy Bragg album. Still listening to music, still was obsessed with music, but just wasn't making it. Um, and then two of my mates at uni put me on to Billy Bragg, first with the song The Short Answer, and then I sort of get obsessed. And um, 
the Walker's Playtime album is always my favourite of his, and that and that was like hugely formative in me just being like obsessed with lyrics. I'd never ever been someone who was super obsessed with lyrics before, and then I became absolutely like that was all I cared about. And then I started playing just me and acoustic guitar, writing songs, and even at that point, I was like, I just like doing this. I'm not really thinking about it. I would say that I took this seriously, seriously, very, very late on comparatively. I would say I was probably like, I've probably been doing this seriously now for, I don't know, six, seven years, thinking that it might actually be a thing. Right. Um, whereas I know a lot of people have that idea in school or in, but I, I started at uni to study law and I did a sort of master's in philosophy after it. I kind of thought that I would be a journalist for a long time. And then I thought maybe like some form of lawyer or politician, God helped me. Thank God I didn't go down that route. Um, but like I, I kind of thought it was always going to be something to do with public communication because I can kind of just talk. And like that's always sort of been one of the things that I can kind of just do. But I, I really didn't realise how much I would love songwriting in particular. I always knew I liked performing. But the obsession with songwriting has been probably the majority of the reason why I, I think I've got good at this because I just love I, I write as much as I can constantly, and I yeah. I found like I found like old SoundClouds and stuff that I'd put old stuff on, and there's like a, there's like hundreds of songs that I just totally forgot existed, and maybe two of them are good, so that's <laughs> not a bad ratio for that long ago. So when you discovered songwriting, you started songwriting. What does it feel like? Did it feel like a release? Kind of getting that stuff out of your, out of your yeah. paper? Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's properly like cathartic. It, it really helps you. Some people write diaries. Some people take photos. Some people paint. Some people you see anything where you can kind of almost get emotions out onto a physical thing that you can kind of either listen to or look at or experience. It does really help you to to move on from certain emotions, and you don't even need to release the songs. I know sometimes when you're younger and you maybe are a bit, you know, you feel like you're in love, and you're not because you're a stupid wee idiot that thinks that just because you know someone pretty like looked at you, like, oh, I'm in love in the way that no one has ever been before, and uh, you write the song about it, and then you kind of realise that's a really good song. I love that emotion for a bit. That's not how I feel about this person. Really, what I am is young and impressionable, and I, I sort of want to be feeling these really big, serious emotions. But and in terms of negative emotions, I think plenty of people have been on record and, and talked about the ability of like putting something out on a, a song or a diary or a painting or whatever it is, and it helping you just like right. That's that's that a nice wee tribute to me feeling like that. Then, but I can move on now. It's not always helpful and it's no substitute for, you know, good communication and, and, you know, if you needed therapy or whatever, but it's always helped me. And yeah, I think the other thing as well is it's just like, see, kind of thinking this might be quite good. And then people telling you that mm -hmm. there's like a really exciting part of that, that at the start when you don't know. Now I do know that there's like like I'm I'm decent at songwriting and performing like there's like quite a good amount of confidence there in that ability. I know that that's not enough. That there's many other factors in this, and I know that there's many other people who are also very talented 
But I, I do have a certain amount of confidence in that. But at the start, you've got no idea because you've never showed anyone or you've only showed people who would tell you you were good anyway. I actually yeah. don't think that's true of my mum and dad. I think they would be honest with me if I was crap. But you never know because they, 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 like, they would look for the good in everything you do. So yeah, I think it's getting that, that I've, I've got a book. I've got a book here in the corner, and it's got when I was when I was younger, say 15, 15, 20 years ago, maybe, and I've got all these lyrics that I wrote. I was never musically gifted, and I thought I'll just take the easy route. I'll be the singer, and I'll just write lyrics like Morrissey would. Um, yeah, yeah. But I still got them all there, um, and the as it's all a range of emotions from love to anger. Um, and I used yeah. to go to my pals, and my pals said, oh, they're really good, we could put them into songs. I sat in 20 years later, I still went untouched, and my missus keeps trying to get me to chuck them out, but I'll, I can't do it, I can't part. A wee time capsule yourself, innit? It's, it's yeah. like a wee glimpse, for better or for worse, isn't it, who you were at one point in your life. Yeah, um, yeah it's dead interesting. I think it's dead interesting when, when stuff's released. So, like, for us, like, we... we we've, I've got songs that are, are about breakups and about you know being single and, and I, I'm now I've now been in a relationship for like five and a half years like I'm now I'm for like I very much hope that my the rest of my romantic life is with my current partner and I think that will be the case uh-huh. um, but when you're singing these songs it does every now and then it does kind of hit you it's like oh, this is a bit funny that like you know all these all these years after you have a breakup with someone, you're still singing a song because the emotion is resonant and it's real and you can feel it in the moment. But to kind of get any performance, you have to kind of relive it to, to make it a bit more authentic. Um. So yeah, it's just strange to have this wee time capsule of your life. And even like political stuff, like before this kind of inc- incarnation of the band, the sort of indie ref was a, a kind of important thing for me politically. And some of the takes I had about Scottish nationalism, I, I couldn't disagree with more now. Still broadly pro independence, but more for a destroy Britain thing than for a yeah. uh, for, for any uh, <laughs> for any hope of what Scotland would become. I just think Britain deserves not to exist administratively, administratively, not physically. Everyone in Britain deserves to exist physically. I would like the administrative entity of the British uh, Kingdom to <laughs> cease to exist. Um, but yeah, like I think the the strange thing about having a back catalogue of songs is you've all you you kind of see yourself develop and you can kind of go back and go all right that's kind of what i thought about 20 you know 2016 oh that's kind of what i thought about 2017 um and then you just see this dramatic change between 2020 and 2021 of you know all, all hope be evaporated from you yeah um, yeah but no it's it is, it is an interesting thing to to have these wee time capsules we we photographs and snapshots of who you were at different points so how how did the the band then and the current form how did how did they form? So me and Ben, as I said, have been in every band together. So we were best mates for like high school, played in the same football team. Ben was the reserve right back, and I was the the star number ten. <laughs> ben, <laughs> ben, ben Ben may tell that story slightly differently. Um, but yeah, uh, what 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 that does tell about both of our personalities, I think, is quite telling, and that Ben is solid and reliable. And don't get me wrong, Ben is also the biggest wild card of the four of us by a mile, but it takes a certain amount of alcohol to get him to become that. But Ben, ben is like the, the sort of more organised, steady of the two of us, and I would probably be the more erratic, unreliable, frustrating, 
an occasionally creative one. Um, but me, what, me, what me you're saying been... there, what you're describing there is Anthony Ralston and David Turnbull. <laughs> oh, I was shooting for uh, like Matt O'Reilly or Tom Rogic, and you've given me David Turnbull. Do you know what? No disrespect to David Turnbull. David Turnbull was an incredibly talented player. Um, but yeah, like I, I that is the kind of vibe. Um, but yeah, like so, me and Ben have, have just like, been best mates since we we're in high school, and I never written together. So he, with the first time, I thought I want to move this for an acoustic guitar, a, a full band. Ben was the Ben was the guy that I immediately wanted on board, and he learned bass for it because he was a guitar player before, and this turned into just like a ridiculously amazing bassist. Then Duncan, my mate for uni, um, we just sort of kind of hung about, and he was just like this dead interesting guy that liked kind of every type of music. Mm-hmm. We we like we overlapped on a bunch of stuff like maybe like the Pixies and kind of like maybe like more soft boy Scottish indie music like the Vaselines and the Pastels and all that. Uh, we went to like indie club nights that would play a mix of Motown and that kind of, you know, indie music. And then he played in a band and I just thought this guy's like really talented and got interesting ideas about music. So an opening came up for a, a guitar player because the person we worked with previously went somewhere else, and so I was like, Duncan, come in. And then eventually, after we, for the first album, the person that played in the first album was Jamie Holmes of the Lapels. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was like the first recording that we'd done was, and that we'd released that you hear as it's, it's Callum Murray on Mirrors, and I think it might just be, it might just be Mirrors. And then as soon as it gets into Useless and Nazi Boys, it's Jamie. Jamie was with us for, I would say, maybe like a year and a half, two years. And then Murray came in after that because Jamie, who actually is drumming with us on a tour just now because Murray can't make it because music in 2023 for drummers is real difficult. And very often drummers are the ones who are the last in the queue for PRS. Not with us. All of our drummers that have released recorded music have a percentage of PRS. But... um it's harder for drummers to make a living exclusively because of music so right. very often drummers will, will have to <clears throat> either play in them at 90 different bands or work other work other jobs but jamie was with us, with us in the first uh album and then from that the touring of the first album onwards it's been murray and murray was just someone that we knew he played in a band called snack villain and we just knew him as a guy we liked him as a guy a lot and he came for a rehearsal and we were like, right, yeah, this this absolutely works. And so he was on all of the EPs after the album and the the album that's about to come out. Right. So obviously the debut album, cracking album, I, I was checking, I was trying to see where it charted. I couldn't find that anywhere. Um, it was number nine in the Scottish album charts. Right. So, I mean... It, as a cracking album, it's it's one of the albums you can listen to right through. About like kind of as we touched on with the colours, there, there doesn't seem to be a bad song on it. I appreciate um, that, thank you. After that came out, it kind of we had lockdown stuff like that. So how did that? How did lockdown kind of change the way you write songs? Uh, more yeah. than any single event that has ever happened. So. I would say that I've gone through two big like shifts in songwriting in my life. So before, when I when I first and everyone should do this. Anyone that's young that's starting a band, not even young. Anyone that's starting a band that's new, you know, fuck being young, being young, being not young. Who cares? Start a band, have fun, do it. As soon as you start your new first band, 
you should just be like, let's just make noises and whatever whatever sounds good, let's do it. And that isn't a rule that should ever really go away, if I'm being honest. But obviously, you become more phone, you become more interested in certain aspects of songwriting. So at first, it was all about music for me, all about music, all about making, especially riffs. Me and, me and the guitarist Chris of my first ever band, that's still one of my best mates now, used to just meet up and be like, here's this really heavy riff I've got, here's this. How can we, how can we make this song? Every song was just like, we'll put a verse in there, put a chorus in there and then a big riff will happen and then another big riff will happen and then we'll, you know, just basically to make people head to headbang too. Then, when I went to uni, the big, the first big shift was I became obsessed with lyrics and I became obsessed with poetry and I became obsessed with just the idea of communicating through words um, and music more than, you know, communicating emotion through the actual musical arrangement or the, the noises that you make through the instruments. And then lockdown made me, and and that, and then from from that point on until lockdown, I wrote every song that I've ever written. So every song that's on the first album, every song that's on the EP before that, I wrote on an acoustic guitar, and brought it to the band, and then we figured it out. Now nine times out of ten, I had ideas for what each person should do, but they had complete freedom to interpret those ideas and and expand on them and change them in any way and we would all go right okay yeah that works or no nah, no nah, actually do the original thing that that doesn't work as well um but it was a collab it was a process that started completely solo but then was brought and kind of collaboratively edited or improved upon mm-hmm. and that was every single song absurd no fun shiny toys etc etc then lockdown happens and it's like well that just can't happen like i can't we can't meet up we can't go into the studio so I'd never ever thought about music production ever, and then thankfully I got a grant from Creative Scotland at the start of the lock- lockdown, which meant that I could buy a computer that was good enough to do music production on. So I basically just started learning how to produce, and started learning how to use the app Ableton, um, and then <clears throat> through doing that, wrote every single song that I've written from. Some of the songs in the It's Been a Year EP, and then all of the songs in the Impermanent EP, and every song in this current album were all written by me and Ableton, and they were all written pretty much with just me programming drums, playing bass, playing guitar. Now, all the guys played their instruments in the album, and all of them have developed parts and added their own spin on it, but the way that it was written was very, very different. And it was sent to a producer before the band really, like, the band had heard it, but before the band could change it or, or add the input, mm-hmm. my Ableton files had been sent over to Luca in LA, uh, who was just editing stuff. Um, Luca, who actually texted me today that I need to get back to, but Luca was a fantastic guy to work with. He's uh, he's worked with a Mercury Prize winner with Ferrara Parks, his first album, like, he's yeah. incredibly talented. Um, but but it changed completely, and what it made me focus on was layers and harmonies, in a way that I'd never ever focused on before. And I think if you listen to this album, what you find is that the use of and and it kind of had already started from the it's been a year EP and AM permanency and onwards. But I don't think there's a single song in this album where there's not more than two two voices. I think there's three harmonies or three voices on pretty much every song, mm-hmm. and I think there's all of these layers of instruments, like even like Mercy, which is probably the most straight up and down song in the album, that guitar line is two guitars and a synth. And the rhythm guitar is like all these different kind of scratchy, different guitars brought together. 
um, there's like a proper four part harmony. <clears throat> um, so just that idea of the way that you write on things like Ableton, allowing you to go back and go, listen, oh, I'll add something there, right? Oh, I'll add something there. And a way that you just don't get if you're doing everything live as a band, you can't go back and add your voice over and over and over. And so it just became this, it, the most probably, one of the most exciting writing periods of my life was was probably, you know, between like my March 2020 and the end of the year. And I think it might be the most prolific I've ever, and I, I write fairly regularly anyway, but I remember writing something like four songs a day for a while, just coming away being like, I don't know what's going on here, but I just need to keep doing it. Like I need to keep tapping into whatever the hell's going on. Um, and the, I mean, the album is fantastic. It's so much less weird than the songs that I wrote because like there was yeah. this real, there was this, there's this quality that I think comes from not knowing what you're doing that's actually really good, that, that can create really cool stuff. So <clears throat> I think I'm going to like probably release the demos at some point, um, maybe just like get them mixed or something, but release them almost as a kind of alt thing because the album's fantastic and I think that Luke has done a better job than I ever could have done on it. But like I do like the weirdness of the originals in a way that you're not you're not going to get off of someone who knows what they're doing because they because they would go nah nah that sounds crap and I'm like I know <laughs> that's the reason I like it because it does sound crap. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, some of the the subject matter on the the new album there's a lot of kind of stuff about like mental health and anxiety. So is that something that that you were struggling with during lockdown or or even before? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It was not something I would say has been a constant in my life. Um, I would say that it's a relatively recent development, and especially during lockdown. And I think that what it did was, one, I think if you ever go through something, it does give you more compassion for other people going through it. So like, I was, in a way, grateful, because I think that what it did is it, made me like a nicer person and a person who understood other people who are going through a hard time a bit better so mm-hmm. you need to try and find the uh, the positives out of what is fundamentally a shitty situation but I think as well like you try and go what is it that I can speak with authority about here it's the same the now right see, see even with stuff happening in Gaza and that you're like see really on, on a very fundamental level who fucking cares about my opinion right on a very fundamental level I need to justify why it is that somebody should listen to what I'm saying and the best way to do that is to think what well, I can speak with some authority about and there's nothing that you can speak with more authority about than what's going on inside your brain and there's also probably nothing that you can be more sure that other people are going through than doubt anxiety self-loathing fear you know all these are all things that, that every person on earth near enough goes through barring a very very small amount of people mm-hmm. and if you're just honest i really I, I think that if you're just honest about your own experience tends to be that you will connect with people because your experience won't be that unique we're all we're all individuals but our lives are all very very similar uh, and i think that's true especially the emotions the material circumstances of all of our lives are quite different but the emotions that we experience are very very similar so it was something I was going through and, you know, you don't, it, it hasn't left completely. Um, but what I think the album is thematically in that regard is an exploration of like 
maybe rumination and trying to break out of that because there's a lot of moments where songs kind of turn into different songs <clears throat> like even or, or, or songs have got two really sharp changes in parts there's two songs in the album called Okay Now and uh, and First to Know where they were two of the first ones written and the point of it was to have the like the verses sound like someone who's trying not to give away what they're feeling and the chorus to sound exactly like how the person is feeling and it's all kind of bubbled over and bubbled out. And I think that lockdown for quite a lot of people was maybe this strange experience of banality and then extreme emotion. So like boredom and like this is the same and everything's the same and, and then just out of nowhere you don't realise how hard it's hit you and then you start to get really upset or annoyed or frustrated or whatever. Yeah. And I was just trying to reflect that a bit. Um, and... It's not all that. There's some songs that are very outward looking. I don't know why. It's just like a short story. And uh, the comedian at the end is about what an experience we had in LA where we've seen a comedian absolutely bomb on stage. Mm-hmm. And and he bombed on stage. And he, I don't think he was a guy who was new to this. I think he was a guy that I'd, I'd seen people say, you know, a legend of the circuit. He's been doing this for, you know, 15 years or whatever, 20 years. And I was like, all right, okay, we perked up. And the first joke he said was just the most like, you know, like, if somebody's going to be edgy and offensive, they need to be funny. Yeah. Otherwise, what's the point? Otherwise, you've just lost a room by saying something cruel or horrible. And that's what he did. He said something cruel and horrible that wasn't funny and everyone just turned on him. And the rest of his set was him kind of realising that he doesn't have it. And it was like a real serious... Like he, was, he wasn't good and he said something seriously offensive, but as an artist, my heart broke for the guy because I was like, yeah, but for the, yeah, but for yeah, the grace of God... There, but there, but for the grace of God, go out always. Always have that fear that one day you'll be standing doing it, going, I, I says, this isn't going to work. I, I, I've wasted my life, and and I, and I was watching a guy go through that, and it really, really affected me. So that last song about that, but yeah, there's there's massive even that, and in a, in a sense, is about the internal workings of your brain yeah. and what the outside world does to that so yeah it's it's got a few different themes in it but like it, there is a constant running thing of maybe more inward struggles than outward yeah so like obviously with anxiety I've, I spoke to um, Joe Stoker for the, the rifles he's just brought out yep. an album kind of highlighting some of the stuff he's been suffering and I asked him kind of how how he manages to get up on stage? Does that not bring on more anxiety? And he said, "Couldn't it be further for the case when he's up on stage and he's doing something like that, with a group of his friends around about him, and he's comfortable and he's in that environment. So is that kind of the, the same for you? Because seeing you, I saw you supporting the Raytons in Glasgow. Oh yeah, yeah, was good that, that's the first time I've seen you live, and I was blown away by the, the stage presence and the confidence that, that all four of you had. It's it's something that it's something that I've always felt, and and I think that see to be honest, I like talking to people anyway. I'm definitely an extrovert. I feel better. I think a big problem with lockdown for me was that I didn't get that kind of group setting thing, mm-hmm. and I discovered that that was something that I relied on for my my like self esteem. So I relied on working public facing jobs that allowed me to walk into somewhere and go, hey, all right, mate, how's it going? Get wee five-second hits of dopamine off of very small reactions, and then I could go back and I wouldn't need that for the people that I was actually close to. But, but yeah, getting on stage, nothing else. You've got nothing else in your head. Um, 
I just think as well, like I, I think it's a it's a really like genuine privilege to be able to do something that you know brings people joy and excitement. Like it really feels good. It feels really good to to know that you're good at something and they do it and if people react in a good way. And I do think as well, like I try and improve stage presence. I try and think about what is it that I can do at this moment. You don't want it to be scripted and to be right, meet this thing, do this here, do that. But you're you're kind of road testing the set each night and trying to improve it. And if you just did the exact same thing every night, you would get bored. So you want it to get better and you want it to get better. So I do, I really appreciate you saying that about stage presence because as, as much as it is something that I do think there's an element of natural ability at, it's definitely something that I've like worked at a lot and tried to improve. <clears throat> um, so yeah, I, 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 would, I would totally agree with your, your man for the rifles. It, it goes when you're on stage, just you, you don't think about, or I don't anyway, I can't speak for anyone else. I don't think about anything else when I'm on stage. Yeah. I mean, that that tour, man, it's some line-up. I'm no particularly fond of the Raytons, but when I've seen it... I, 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 must, I must say that I am very much. Yeah. I, 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 like, I, uh, I couldn't speak highly enough of them as a live band or guys. Like, I really, really think that they they are properly, like, deserving of all the success that they have. Yeah. Oh, I, I'm not slagging them off in any way. I just... Uh, they, they weren't... The, the reason I bought the tickets was because I, I seen the support and I thought Declan Welsh and the Keys. Um, another, another very good band as well. It's, it's been a nice tour. Like, the, the really good thing about these tours is we did another one with Tony Blanc and Dead Pony and just like when when everybody gets on and everybody likes each other and everybody's nice and this and the and the it, this all comes for the for the main band in the tour and it's a lesson that I've tried to learn particularly off of Johnny and Sam the singers that you would. Uh, it's unfair because the singer isn't always the leader or whatever and you don't really need leaders right but mm -hmm. when you don't know the band you assume the guy standing at the front with the microphone is sort of the speaker for everybody and and both times the first night of the tour the two guys that you would expect would have every right to shut themselves up in their room and not say it to anyone are down giving you a bottle of vodka or a bottle of wine or, and, and going really glad to have you on the tour thanks so much which I think just both of those times have ended up resulting in really good tours. Mm -hmm. And both of them, I think, are people setting an example of being like, we're all in this together. I'm really happy. We're not just picking news because somebody just, some some agent told us it would be beneficial for us. We've actually listened to your music. We like you. So I can't speak highly enough about the the bands, the two tours that we've been on and every band on them, the, the sort of big support tours anyway. Yeah. You've, you've mentioned Palestine a couple of times. You played at Transmat. He did a speech about Palestine, which went viral at the time. Um, and now, where we are now, like just over a week ago, we had all the, the incidents in, in Palestine there. So do you feel, as a, a musical artist, it's kind of your job to kind of speak out on, the, on these subjects? Because there's, there's a lot of people that don't. Yeah. I guess, I guess there's levels to it, right? So see, at the time I was speaking, apartheid existed. Um, there was ethnic cleansing by the UN definition, which is displacement and moving people out of their home. That's been going on for, for decades now. Mm -hmm. But this wasn't happening. And I understand that, that many people would say that, well, Hamas went into Israel and attacked. And I'm like, well, 100%. That, that no, no one in my side is celebrating those those attacks. No one, yeah. I do not, nor does anyone that I know, nor does anyone I've seen 
at any Palestine solidarity rally whatsoever, right? But like the reality is that now the majority of people in Israel are safe. The majority of people in Israel have hospitals to go to if they're, un if they're injured. The majority of people in Israel have power, electricity, water and food. Now we are seeing what was already a humanitarian crisis in Gaza and the fact that several members of the Labour Party and, and beyond have not even been able to call it that is sickening. But that was already a humanitarian crisis. Now there is a genocide happening. We are witnessing it. We are witnessing the the, the period of time in which people are asked, what would you have done if this is that time, this is that time, what would you have done if? And don't get me wrong, like, you don't want to have a saviour complex. You don't want to think that your voice is that important. My voice isn't that important. My voice, compared to Palestinian voices, compared to people going through this, is not that important. But because of racism and because of the media propaganda, somebody with a face like mine and a voice like mine in Scotland might get listened to slightly more than someone with a Palestinian accent and a different skin colour for me. I wish that wasn't the case, but that's the reality. So I think that the job that you have more than as a musician, but as somebody with a platform that isn't being bombed or doesn't directly know people that are being bombed, is that you can have this totally artificial, but I think real in a um, real in a way that how people take it. You can have this position of, of, of either neutrality or, you know, somebody will listen to you in a way that oh, they would say that, and I think that's terrible, and I think that everybody should listen to Palestinians, but I have found that <clears throat> when I speak about this, there are people who otherwise would not have thought about Palestine that, that, th that think about it yeah, um, in a different way. And I think that my job is to be useful to the Palestinians. And in whatever way I can do that, if that was shutting up, I would shut up. But they don't tell... My, the people that I see from Palestine aren't telling anybody to shut up about this. Um. And when we got main stage transmit and then Janine was attacked, I'd been in Janine, I'd been there, I'd been in the city that had been attacked, I'd seen the places that, that were getting levelled and I just was like, if this doesn't make you do something, I don't feel that I deserve too much credit because I, honestly, if, you, if anyone had been in my position, They'd been over there, they'd seen what I'd seen, and then it had a literal fucking twenty foot platform, and and Scotland's biggest music festival, and and with the BBC cameras on them, and the the second job that I think I have, and that probably extends more broadly to anyone who is a Palestinian solidarity advocate, is that understand the understand the circumstances in which you are speaking, understand the problem, and trying understand and plan what it is that you're going to say in a way that is the most amount of use so so i thought i could i could stand on stage i could fly a palestine flag and i could say israel is an apartheid state free palestine and then i could go into the next song and it might look cool and it might look like i've i've totally like oh good for you two fingers up but there's no way that makes it in the bbc and i was like what i can do is i can try my best even though I was like, it's probably not going to happen, but let's give it a chance. I can try my best to get a full speech about this on the BBC that might be seen by a lot of people. And how do I do that? Well, I find the parts of this that you just can't argue with. I find the parts of this that show that shows the hypocrisy. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry, I'm just getting a glass of water. No, that's okay. I'm going to find the parts of this that 
to any person who hadn't heard of Palestine, you go, hold on, Nelson Mandela was supportive of it, but we like, we like Nelson Mandela. Hold on, Glasgow gave the keys to the city. Right, that's what Nelson... Right, kids have been... Refugee camps with children have been bombed. You need to start there and then go go to the other places. You need to start there and then get to Palestinian liberation and then get to the idea that can you justify having an ethno state anywhere? You know, mm-hmm. I, I, regardless of what ethnicity, regardless of what religion it is, is there a, is it in twenty twenty three appropriate for anywhere on earth to be going? Our population has to be made up of X amount of this religion. So, so that's a conversation you can have later on. But that's a conversation that would baffle people who aren't already on board. And I think I've become frustrated sometimes at the Palestinian solidarity thing where, where people are just like shouting about Zionism. And you're like, you know, you're losing, you know, you're losing the people that we need to stop this genocide. Like again, if you're telling me that we have enough Palestinian solidarity activists to march on 10 Downing Street and to, you know, take the government by, you know, in a coup and to start whatever, fine. But I, I, I highly doubt we're there. Like we are not there and we're not probably going to get there in my lifetime. So the reality is that we need to take the ones that we can get. And I think that in terms of Palestine, I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure that the, there is going to be this broad church of agreement on the idea that the, the Palestinian cause of liberation is one at least not right now, is one that requires a complete redrawing of the maps of that region. But what I think you can get very, 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 very quickly that is also necessary is I think you can get an end to Israeli aggression because I think even by even by American standards, let alone any other country, let alone any sane country, let alone any country that doesn't try and actively get involved in every other country in the world's business and who doesn't see the only solution to international diplomacy as bombs, even by that standard... Israel are particularly brutal, they're particularly callous, they're particularly unconcerned about the loss of civilian life, they're particularly aggressive, they're particularly militaristic. And I think that even Israelis are seeing that, even so many voices from inside Israel, so many people at the kibbutzes that were were attacked have said, this is, the responsibility of this lies at the hands of the governments the success of governments, not just Netanyahu and Likud, but but chiefly Netanyahu and Likud, but the success of Israeli governments who've thought either we don't care about Palestinian life or they'll never do anything to us so we can keep expanding. The, the settlements have kept expanding and expanding ever since 48, even 67 borders, they've kept expanding from there. The, the amount of... Um, how irresponsible, is a better way to put it, how irresponsible it is to move families onto a, onto a war zone. Uh, Israel talk about Hamas using human shields. What the hell is asking families to move into settlements bar placing a line of families at a, at a border that you know is a war zone? Uh, and, and again, I am only paraphrasing is the Israelis that have been killed and that have hostages taken. These, these are the people who are saying these things and calling for this government's tactics to be roundly condemned and changed. You need a diplomatic solution to this. You're not going to finish this militarily, even if you care not for the Palestinian lives. Look at what happens when you bomb a region into compliance. ISIS, Al-Qaeda becomes ISIS. Iraq becomes even more unstable. Afghanistan becomes so unstable that the best bet for it is seen as the Taliban again. That That's what all, what, 22 years, 20 years of American uh, diplom- uh, Americans' attempts 
to build a democracy, quote-unquote democracy, read place that will trade with us uh-huh. um, in the Middle East. Where are we? The Taliban are back. It's honestly so ridiculous that you would laugh if it wasn't so genuinely sad. So like, we know where this goes. We know so, where this leads. This so doesn't where, lead. where do you think we find um, diplomacy? Because I, mean, I, I don't think we're going to get it for our government. I don't think they are. I think that there's a chance that there's a chance that if the only shining light of having politicians who have so few principles and who ha- who do not care about anything apart from being elected is that if enough people make enough of a fuss, these politicians to do anything. If there was enough people in the United Kingdom calling for open genocide, these politicians would would enthusiastically support open yeah. genocide, right? So the the opposite is true. If there was enough people, and there's all there's, there was a lot of people really promise and start the marches at the weekend but our best job is twofold it's number one to create the environment in the united kingdom in which anyone who anyone who's on the fence is pro it comes over to the it comes over to earth way of thinking and anyone who's pro israel becomes on the fence much like it did during south africa when south africa was beginning to come to an end there's plenty of people who are going I mean, these people are just defending themselves. This is our barbaric people that they're dealing with. There's nothing they can do. How do you expect Rhodesians to live with Zimbabweans? How is that possible? Uh, and history has rightly seen that viewpoint as some of the most racist, horseshit, batshit takes that anyone's ever had in history. So time will judge Israel to be a monumentally short-sighted and failed project. I have no doubt about that. I do not wish any harm on any of the citizens of Israel. I wish nothing but solidarity for people who are bravely fighting against the colonial apartheid oppression within Israel, knowing that their lives are probably going to be really difficult for the next bit. But I just even a two-state solution at this point, I think, is 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 really short-sighted. You need a new country with equal rights for Palestinians and Israelis. You need an administrative end to this terrible system where one country just gets to do whatever it likes to the place that it occupies. But I would take I would just take a ceasefire at this point. I think you start from there and you move on. My opinion on what the right or wrong thing to do is completely irrelevant. It's about what the Palestinians want at the end of the day. They were the people who were kicked off their land and colonised. Um, but the diplomatic solution, I think, can come from the West because I think a ceasefire can come from the West. Anything beyond that is we've got a lot of work to do, but you've got, you've got a so-called human rights lawyer in charge of the Labour Party who, through political opportunism, is, and I described I describe this to my partner, have you seen those videos where somebody comes in and their dog is like shat all over the room and the dog won't look at the person and they go, uh-huh. did you do this? Did you do this? And the dog goes like, goes like that and won't look. That's Keir Starmer when he gets asked about Palestinians that have died. He just sort of looks away and awkwardly goes, oh, I support Israel's right to self-defence. And you're like, just fucking say it's wrong. Just say yeah. it's wrong. Nobody's asking you to condemn Fucking what is it? nobody's asking you to support Hamas. Nobody's asking you to say that the Hamas attacks on Israel were good. They were fucking terrible. Everyone realizes that, but everyone also I mean, should realize that this is just not on either. It was on the other day justifying, um, justifying the right to starve people. It's mental, isn't it? Mental. But I think the weird the thing I think the weird thing when you look at like say two thousand and one to two thousand and three versus this is that Tony Blair lied and was delusional. And he, and he tried to frame it as we were doing them a favour, whereas Keir Starmer's just trying not to answer the question. 
and I'm not sure which is worse. It's really hard to tell which is worse because they're both despicable. But I think that because of Keir Starmer's total lack of a backbone and total lack of any principles, that I think there's a chance. I also think that there's an opportunistic chance that the Tories become more left-wing on this because there is people who are right-wing who are very open about saying this is wrong in a way that people who are centrist aren't. So, for example, on the question time, I found myself in the absolutely mad world of agreeing with Piers Morgan and going, yeah, how are you the most, how are you one of the more reasonable people on this panel? How is there a Labour Party member that, that is to the right of Piers fucking Morgan? But but that's it's because there's an element of the right wing that take the lead from Donald Trump where kind of having your own, being seen as independent is, being, is seen as quite a positive thing among some voters on the right. Now, independent from what? Not fucking businesses and corporations, right? But having being seen to have some free thought and some idea of I can say things that maybe aren't the mainstream opinion is sometimes seen as beneficial. Whereas to centrist politicians, that has now been the, the received wisdom is now that that is a total election killer. That what you have to do is you have to not piss anyone off, piss as few people off as you can, and you'll get in. So there is also a chance, I think, that you find that somebody like Rishi Sunak or somebody like Donald Trump or some somebody on the right ends up trying to, through opportunism, not through any principles, not through any genuine humanitarian concern, but because of space to attack Labour. Just you see it lockdown as well. You know when they, they announced sort of sweeping uh, benefits to get people through? Um, Labour would never have done that. Labour would have been too shit scared to do that. So the, the Tories are fucking worse than Labour in many, many, many ways and probably overall still are. But Labour are so ineffective and so shit that there's genuine space for the Tories to go, yeah, we'll, we'll give you the money. We'll give you the money. Of course you need money to live. Who, who, what fucking idiot wouldn't give you his money during a lockdown? So yeah. I, I think there's a chance that I think there's a chance that with enough public pressure, one of these opportunist politicians decides, I want in on that. I want to be the guy that, that, that listens to the public. So I think our biggest job is to create the environment in which the majority of people are like, this can't keep going on. That also then means that direct action, things like going into, you know, stopping the Israeli war machine. Um, if you have a public, look at, look at fucking Extinction Rebellion. If you have a public who really, really d kind of resents the right of these people to do this thing, the police can be really, really hard on them. If you have a public who supports what the protests are doing, the police will not be as hard on them. So I don't want to put activists in danger by asking them to go and put themselves at risk to a public who would like to see them punished. I think we have to do both, and we and we have to be like propagandists effectively. Right. Being a Celtic fan, statement for Celtic the other week regarding um, Palestinian flags and banners and all that, how out of touch do you, you think the Celtic border in I think both the Celtic board and a sadly high percentage of the Celtic fans are out of touch because what they feel is that the thing that makes our club special is its football achievements. And 1967 aside, that is a lie. Mm -hmm. We are special because we have stood up for what is right and we have a fan base that is uniquely tuned in, uniquely supportive, uniquely celebratory of parts of our culture that we've been told to be ashamed of. There's a reason that the fields of Athens rise called a sectarian song and it ain't because it has anything to say about Protestants it's because you shouldn't be allowed to celebrate that story the same way with like fucking 
Scottish people are, t- are telling the Irish rugby team what songs they should be fucking singing in the changing rooms. Shut up. You know nothing of their struggle. You know nothing of what they've went through. Please be quiet about what Irish people get to do or not. And I honestly like the Celtic board. We all know the Celtic board are Tories. We all know the Celtic board. Look, nobody, nobody runs that big a business without having bad politics, right? That's just the, the reality of it. Nobody that rich has got good politics, apart from maybe Dolly Parton. I can't think of many other examples of people who are that rich who've got good politics. But oh yeah, and the, and the thing is, right? See, they could just have said nothing. They could just have said nothing. They, they didn't need to back it. They didn't need to do it. They could have they could have been cowards and quiet, and no one would have batted an eyelid. But they are so fucking obsessed. And honestly, quite a lot of the Labour men that are high up in Celtic are former Labour friends of Israel people, proper Blairite folk. Mm-hmm. And like the idea that we are anything without not just the fans, but the fucking Green Brigade and the, and the Ultras and the fans that actually have got the bottle to say something, as opposed to the fans who, anytime I fucking go, sit moaning about Honestly, see, see during Angie's first year, the amount of abuse, O'Reilly, Hatati, Kyogo, Jackie Marcus, for guys that are, are, are telling people that people should shut up and support the club. No, Fuck off. <laughs> There'd be no fucking noise at Celtic Park without these ultras groups. So if you so, don't back the Green Brigade, if you don't back the progressive causes of Celtic, you've grossly misunderstood the, the reason that you should be proud of Celtic. I love the football. I love the players. I love Henrik Larson, of course, to the but bottom of my heart. But I think all of these players, and another thing I'll say as well is, right, it's obviously sad what Nier Beton's saying, right? Sad what Nier Beton's saying. I liked Nier Beton. I liked when we, we unfroze him at the start of every Champions League qualifier campaign <laughs> when we hadn't signed a centre-half. I loved that Nier Beton seemed to like Celtic and try very hard, right? And I also have enough perspective to realise that if you are... Born and raised in Israel, you do military service. You've 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 bought into the project. I'm not expecting a fucking great take on Israel for near Beaton. Just like I'm not expecting a great take on trans rights for Pope Francis, right? There are certain there are certain bodies and institutions that you're part of that are going to limit your ability to be progressive and things. I get that, but about to my knowledge, Abad has said fuck all. And I don't think that just by being Israeli, you are guilty of the crimes of the Israeli fucking government. I I, I kind of think that there's a, a little bit of a danger that some people in their support of Palestine, which is completely valid, make a 21-year-old Celtic player that seems quite quiet and has said, fuck all, answer for crimes that he's got nothing to do with. Like, we've flown Palestine flags the entire time Abad has been here, and yeah. he's played well, and he's tried. I, I, I've got zero problem with Lela, Lela Bada unless I've not got a clue unless he said some horrendous thing about fucking Palestine in which case that's incredibly disappointing but I don't think um, people are I, guilty, I've heard nothing either it seems to be the, the papers have made up a story that's not there I've I mean like Cameron Carter Vickers is, is American well I think he's yeah, I think we plays for America you know but Matt O'Reilly's uh, plays for Denmark but he's English you know, our governments and the American governments are, are as responsible as anyone. And I don't think we need to answer for their crimes. I think we need to, like, do shit to stop them doing it, but I don't think they're our fault. So, like, the exact same token applies to somebody like Leila Bada who doesn't even fucking live there. Um, But, yeah, like, I, I think that the tension between the Celtic board and the Celtic fans is going to constantly be... I think it will never go away until it's fan-owned. And I think that, as well, like, 
there's tension between the parts of the Celtic fan group that feel that we have a responsibility to speak up for certain causes and the parts of the Celtic fan group that think that they just want to basically like laugh at Rangers forever. Yeah. And 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 just and just win and win and win. And I like winning, winning's great, winning's brilliant, but you know, I, I think there are some things that are more important than that. Exactly. Um, that, I mean, that's as if we can fucking win anyway. They're shite. <laughs> the surprising thing for me is, say whatever the fuck we like, we'll still probably <laughs> win nine titles out of ten because they're the worst run club in Europe. Uh, <laughs> the surprising thing for me, where obviously, um, I had a a debate with my pal Declan, um, and he was he was we're against... playing any range of stereotypes, aren't we? Yeah. That's a, it's like having this name, realizing that you're you're. Your opinion is invalid because of this name. Rangers fans is funny. Anyway, sorry, carry on. Well, well, this is the thing. Like, we, like I didn't expect it for him. I, I just know all Declan's is kind of political. They get the right mindset. I think of you and I think of Declan McKenna and um, Elvis Costello. He was a Declan as well. So yep. I'm sitting on my WhatsApp and my pal Declan texts me all about this thing with the board, and he's like, ah, "What's your opinion on this?" He said, I know what your opinion will be anyway, he says, but I disagree with it. And I was like, ah. I shot him down right away. I says, well, I says, you start banning banners, you get the club to stop playing um, This Land Is Our Land, Let The People Sing. I says, because the start of these songs talk about oppression. I says, so you can't be political on that front, but then tell people they're not allowed to have banners. So... That that's it's, it's, it's the just like, so divided where so as you say it really is and, and I think that there's, it's it's okay to, to not want to have to engage with them it's okay to feel that emotion right everybody feels it see when I see these photos I don't want to be watching it right I don't want to be watching it but there does need to be something that kicks in and goes actually see like that that isn't as important that isn't as important a feeling everybody wishes every single time they went to see Celtic we were just singing about us. Beating Rangers and we were, you know, that, you know that game where Andy Halliday get cheered by the Celtic. That's the that's the that's the game every Celtic fan wants every single week, right? Just just joy and uh, to be a laugh and not to be heavy duty. And hopefully, you know, you build a world in which that can be the case. It shouldn't fall to fucking football fans to say something. It should be the responsibility of people who actually have direct power. They should feel that responsibility. But I really am proud of Celtic for doing that, and I think it's something that we should all be proud of. And I think that. We should probably by now have realised that these controversial opinions are just controversial because our government is trying to do something fucking horrible, isn't it? Because they're 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 against. There's nothing. See, saying see even the banner they put out after the 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 attacks, right? Victory to the resistance. Well, it's not victory to the terrorists. It's not victory to the. It's it's an acknowledgement of a relationship in which Palestinians are forced to resist. No one chooses to resist. You're forced to resist or you're forced to comply. The idea of uh, resistance implies that there's a domination and there's something to fight against. Mm-hmm. And so there is no option for Palestinians to you either you either admit defeat and live under the boot of the people that have moved in and kicked you off your land or you resist. And so saying victory to the resistance is saying that we want this relationship to end and by any means necessary is usually a, a, a description of a situation in which a series of non-violent means have failed. And that is the case with Palestine. This isn't the first thing. This isn't the first resort. This is the last resort. And 
we in the West can be as horrified and condemn it and be sickened by it all we want, but it matters not to the people who are living under this every day. And I would also add that Israel just did what they were going to do anyway, but more. Yeah. It's not a change of fucking policy by Israel. It's not. This isn't brand new. This isn't, oh my God, Israel have really changed what they were doing with the Palestinians. What were they doing before? Uh, a siege. What are they doing now? A uh, siege, but worse. All right, wow, okay, cool, yeah. This has clearly been... The Israeli government clearly really have had to put their heads together and and think of what to do, and they've come up with, let's do a siege again, but more. So, like, I am proud of the, particularly the Green Brigade and the Ultras of, of like, supporting causes that the whole of the rest of Scottish football and their absolute fucking wet sackery of having zero opinion on fucking anything and being proud of it. If I hear another fucking Hearts fan, another fucking Livingston fan, another fucking fan of any other club that says fuck all about anything other than the two agreed upon things you can talk about in sport, which is uh, fans deserve better and men's mental health. Good, keep speaking up about them. They're both important things, but you also speak about topics that you think are important. So let us speak about what we think is important. And we'll see who history judges to have had a more uh, beneficial impact in society. People calling for the end to genocide or people saying that ticket prices should be a bit lower. Brilliant. As a Celtic fan, just before we move on, how do you, as a musical artist, obviously you've nailed your, your colours to the mast right there then. Do you do you ever get any kickback for the audience? <laughs> yeah. Of course you do, because it's Glasgow, and that's how people act. I mean, somebody went, I've not even fucking listened to this, but you've got that fucking top on, so you can fuck off. <laughs> I was like, brilliant. I don't care who... I, Amy McDonald supports Rangers, Callum Beatty supports Rangers, uh, the whole of Twin Atlantic support Rangers. I don't give a fuck what team and artist I support. I, I like supports. I could not care less. I do not care, and I kind of extend anyone who's into us I imagine also doesn't care because there's plenty of Rangers fans that come up to me and slag me off and say they get beat and I laugh because yeah. it's that's fucking fine. That's funny. The, see the rivalry and the kind of niggling. I never want that to go away. That is some of the most greatest thing about football is the ability to take that wee mean part of yourself that doesn't really have anywhere else to go and to let it go in football in a good-natured way and to laugh at a team that you've, you're allowed to just hate. I, I don't hate any Rangers fans. I fucking hate Rangers. And I imagine all Rangers fans that are decent don't hate Celtic fans, but they fucking hate Celtic. And that's totally fine. That's good. That is a good thing. That can be allowed to exist. But what I don't understand is the, the people that really write you off because your name is fucking Declan and you're a Celtic fan who, whose entire life is so consumed by, and particularly Rangers fans, I feel for, by an ideology that, that is like what anti-Irish I, I don't know I, I, I'm, but I'm Scottish I've just got an Irish name but anti-Scottish people with Irish names right okay cool so so like what what is that then For to what end you realise that Govan gets his fucked over by the state of Britain as fucking uh, Royston does like that we're all we all should be in this together at some point and I do think there was a period of time a few things have happened since then I think Scottish independence has obviously been a real even more of a division for Rangers fans and Celtic fans than it was before because there used to be the Labour Party that the majority of Celtic and Rangers fans would vote for. So there'd be an element of disagreement on certain things, but there would kind of be an idea that, well, you know, we want 
we kind of want the best for our families and that 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 seems like the best option but I, I have full faith that the vast majority of Rangers fans are genuinely like decent people that support a club that whose ideology I fucking despise but that they support it for reasons that don't seem to be as ideological or political as the majority of at least a lot of the Celtic fans I know and it's this is also true of any fans I have that or any friends I have sorry that, that would be like right wing ish and I do have a few no one that I think is hateful but a few people who think that you know there are prob there are solutions to the problems in society that are can be found through free market capitalism or through whatever a lot of these people see politics as a game as, as a hobby or as like a fun topic of conversation but something that they park as soon as they because yeah. a lot of people I know that, that are like staunch Rangers fans that would maybe have some real bad opinions that would sing some real bad songs at the weekends outside of football that's not who they are at all whereas the majority of people I know who are like politically minded Celtic fans it's like their whole identity it's their whole life they, they, yeah. the, the whole thing is that I'm a socialist I'm a fucking republican I'm this I'm that so we're not dealing with the same kind of politicisation in, in either fan base so I think it's very easy for a lot of Rangers fans to, to like our band and to not listen to our politics or to like our politics and to still support Rangers or to just like the music and not really think about any of it. I think it's dead easy. And I don't think you need to be a fucking socialist to to, to like our music. Um, but it helps. Um, mm. no, but like, I, I think like there's a... I think there's like a... There is a little game that we, we, we play that we probably shouldn't, which is... Ha ha, look at the fucking state of yous, we are right and yous are wrong, right? Now, despite the fact that I kind of think that's very often true, <laughs> like, it's it's pointless and it doesn't help anyone and I don't want to be sat, the same way I don't want to be sat being the only one that was right about genocide, I don't want to be sat with Glasgow in fucking ruins, with the NHS dismantled, we are getting nowhere, we no government able to do anything to help anyone and to go... Ah, see, yous all love the Queen, so that's your fault. I, I kind of think we need to try and find some way to have some progressive movement that isn't just tied to Celtic. As great as a Celtic fan it is, to see that every day, every fucking musician, every day any trade union rally, every day any Palestine solidarity rally, you could just shout, Glasgow, straight and white, and get the response, <laughs> right? But like, I don't like that, I don't want that to be the case. I wish that we had a movement that transcended all of these lines because at the end of the day, super fucking stupid to live your life based on what football team you support in it. Even yeah. if it's e either good or bad. Even if you love everything about that football club, even if you don't. The reality also is that Rangers and Celtic are, are businesses that take our money and try and make a profit. And they use, they use our progressive values and they use Rangers' conservative values to get money off of them. So mm -hmm. see when see when they've got a fucking army guy repelling down Ibrox because Michael Beale's under pressure and they want to distract and they go, look at look at the look at the poppy. Look at the poppy everyone. Ignore ignore how shite we are. Look at the poppy. Look at the poppy. And our fans, when we've got fucking like when we're you know, Neil Lennon is got a lot of fan pressure in the club and they're releasing this land is your land and Bigging up the Irishness and the Republican and Brother Walford yeah. and going, look at the look at the Tim stuff, look at the look at the Irish stuff, look at the Irish stuff, everyone, we like you. They, they're both taking advantage of both of us. They're both taking advantage of both of the fan bases. And I think as someone who is like a socialist, a communist, whatever you want to call it, like you can't just 
laugh at fellow workers who have been taken advantage of. There has to be an element of compassion and empathy. Um, but I would also never like to lose the funny rivalry that means that, like, you know, there's, there's, I like, I like the rivalry. I like yeah. the. the I like the ninety minutes of of aggression, and then it to sort of end there. And there, and there we go. <laughs> so obviously, last year you sold at the Barrowlands, two nights at Barrowlands. So you don't do that. We just all Celtic fans. So no, no. Right, uh, there's plenty, plenty of Rangers fans that like us, and plenty of Rangers fans that hate. Me. There's plenty of people that hate my politics that like my music, and I'm always baffled by that. But good on you. Who fucking cares? Yeah. Like, like we like. So yeah, how was that then? The the two nights at the Barrowlands. It's great. I, I would. I was really, really close to letting you to letting you just say two nights at the Barrowlands because I would love to claim that that was true, but I have to be honest and say it was one night at the Barrowlands. Well, so it's okay. It's okay. I should have just said it was two, and it would have sounded more impressive. But we did sell it one. It was amazing. One night at it's the Barrowlands. I'll need. To, I'll need to remember and edit all that. Out. Absolutely fine. Don't stress. Um, but <laughs> the uh, the it was the best gig we've ever played. Really special. I properly like. It's just this venue that has so much. It's this venue that just has so much history. It's got so much like character to it. You can tell that it's got this special vibe. Um, everybody that works on it is really nice. Takes good care of you. And it's just a bucket list moment for any band in Glasgow. So I, I was totally, totally like, um, like over the moon. They've played it and they've sold it out. Is just crazy. And it's just like a nice wee indication that, you know, it's heading in the right direction, keep at it. You this is an achievable dream for you to, you know, make a living through music. Um and and to kind of be able to connect with people through your art in a way that is really like life affirming. I think that's the best way I can describe it, is that when you've for example, a song I've got called Talking to Myself, which was written about feeling isolated and alone and in lockdown and is MD listening? Does MD care? Is MD going to hear? And then you get 2,000 people in a room singing that back to you. You're like, fucking hell, this is properly like, you know, a really good antidote for that wee voice in your head that says, give up, what's the point? That everybody has for everyone. So it was a properly brilliant experience. We got to do it with Spires and Clovs, who are both bands, Peaceful Bride, who we love. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah, I think it was it was just a fantastic experience. We we really were were super privileged to have it and like the crowd as well. Like we 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 properly went for it. So we had like this big like um I can't remember the name of it, but it was like a big sort of mesh thing that fell down when the first note of Mercy kicked in. Um and it looked amazing and the lights looked great, but like there was like maybe like a three second delay on the thing falling down. Right. So for three seconds it did feel oh my God, this isn't falling down. I'm just going to be playing the biggest gig of my life behind some sort of fucking mesh, like a mesh stage curtain or whatever it is. But then it fell and everything was great and the crowd was just, from start to finish, absolutely mental. And uh, yeah, it just, it's never, it's never anything short of really exciting and wonderful when, you know, for the first note to the last, you've just got a whole crowd that's like, I am, every minute of this, I'm going to, like, sing my heart out, jump, mosh, whatever it is. It's just really, really cool. But I think with the Barrowlands as well, what you find, I mean, you get all, all these bands from down south coming up, and they all, they all talk highly about the Barrowlands. But see, when a Scottish band headlines it, 
they always seem to there always seems to be a show surrounding that. They're always like the Scottish bands want to pull out all the stops for for this gig. I've seen yeah. it with nuts. I've seen it with the the Lafontaines, um, and all you put on a show when you play the Barrowlands because it's um, yeah a monumental. A monument. I think that's the that's where the guys kind of it's us guys kind of hold it in a higher regard than anybody else. I think you're totally right. I think it's always going to have a, an added sentimental significance to the people of, of Scotland. Um, but I would say every band in England is choking, every band in, in Wales, every band in Ireland is choking mm. to play the barras. Like they all are like that's where I want to go in Glasgow. So uh, its reputation is is incredibly like. Um, positive around the world but yeah it's a, it's a fucking hang in it it's a place it's a, it's a bit it's where you go and see I remember seeing Neutral Milk Hotel I've seen Franz Ferdinand there I've seen Bombay Bicycle Club there I've seen a bunch of people there and, and every gig it's like oh yeah this is the best gig I'll ever see this band play like, I'm not going to see them play a better gig than this Yeah. Um, Neutral Milk Hotel in particular was brilliant it's a pure hipster soft boy choice right but like it was proper emotional I went to see uh, Billy Bragg there just after lockdown as well, and that was. Aye, that in class. See, see, just looking around the room at the, at the audience, man. It's like a totally different audience. Like everybody's all different ages and all that, and everybody's there just smiling to be back at a gig. And um, don't get much music at Billy Bragg concert, right enough. He just talks all the way through it. But uh, I, yeah, I've seen him. I've seen him in Edinburgh, and I've seen him at his his level. We we played the left field stage, his left field stage at Glastonbury before lockdown, and I've seen him there. And I mean, I've got his lyrics tattooed on my arm. I've got uh, to celebrate my love for you with a pint of beer and a new tattoo on my arm. So like, I'm such a huge Billy Bragg fan. I've, I've as a songwriter, I think he's just. Amazing, probably one of the most underrated songwriters that I've ever heard, but also an incredibly nice person. Um, he came over uh, after we played, and he he was like, "Oh, you?" He went, "Oh, my my Rosie, my Rosie's a big fan of you now. It was saying you got a lot of presents. I was wondering where mine was, and I <laughs> I was so like, ah, it's Billy Bragg that I just like went what." And we're like, oh, it's just a joke, mate. Don't worry about it. And I was like, ah, oh, and I still, you know, every like every like three or four months, I'll wake up screaming at that interaction. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I've kept you nearly an hour and a half, and um, we're, we're getting towards the end. But obviously, coming up, obviously next week the album comes out, uh, and then you're going on a UK tour, and then on a European tour. Yep. Uh, Looking at the tour dates, I didn't see any Glasgow and that. I know you've just done like a world tour of Glasgow. Small we things. we did five dates, so we thought we'll give Glasgow a wee break. Um, I think the only Scottish date is Aberdeen. We're doing we're doing Aberdeen. Um, but yeah, I think that the really exciting ones. It's always exciting. Like it's 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 more exciting to see a fan brace go anywhere. So the fact that we've already got places like Leeds and Birmingham and Manchester and, and different places, London's very close to selling out and it will in advance, let alone in a couple of weeks before it, but like, you know, in the month months preceding it, but like Rotterdam and Amsterdam and Prague and Budapest and all these places like Hamburg is sold out. Which is just like so cool, like that. That's that. It's going to be so exciting this tour because like we're going to be going to places knowing that this place is going to be packed. Usually, your first phrase of touring are, "Fingers crossed." It's Norwich and Wednesday night trips. This could this could go any. This could go anywhere. 
this could be great. It could be we're going to give up tomorrow. This is these gigs could go from anything between that. But I think now we we've sort of established ourselves as being a a level above emerging. We can now really look forward to the tours of just busy rooms every night, sold out mostly, and yeah, Europe in particular is just so exciting. It's so exciting to sell a gig out in Amsterdam like three three months in advance. Brilliant. It's just crazy. It's really nice. Yeah. I so all the best for that, and thanks very much. Hope to get something in Glasgow, maybe <laughs> the new year or something. Um, we definitely will do, but we're planning something big, so we'll, we'll have a we'll have a bit of a lead up to it. Brilliant. Obviously, the, the podcast got time for heroes. I asked my guest to pick four heroes to come for dinner, dead or alive, wherever, whatever aspect of your life you want. Why are your heroes, and what would you cook them? Okay, so. I think that I'm going to stick to musical heroes because my first instincts would be revolutionaries, communist thought leaders, etc. That possibly would be a little bit esoteric, a little bit self-involved for me to pick that may alienate some viewers. So let's stick to musical heroes. So I probably have to go Billy Bragg first and foremost because guys like tattooed in my arm. He was so instrumental in my like songwriting development and I know that he's a decent guy so I've got one person that I know I'm guaranteed to get on with and that I like mm-hmm. my second one is going to be Nina Simone because I'm such a huge fan of both her music and her as a person and I think she just seems like <clears throat> chaotic and fun and I think you need somebody that gets a wee bit a wee bit too lively at a party to try and like you know make things interesting uh-huh. And someone, someone that just I think would would have such valuable insights into both music and kind of broader thinking. So, Nina Simone would be another one. I think that my third is going to be Jarvis Cocker, because yeah. I just love pulp. We got to play the main stage at the same time, like the same bill as them this year. I just, I, I Jarvis Cocker is just someone that I think is is properly phenomenal and interesting. Um, and then. I think that my fourth one, I see, I was struggling with a few people with this. Um, oh, fuck it, I'll go Debbie Harry. Why not? I, 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 I love Blondie. I love Debbie Harry. I am in love with Debbie Harry. <laughs> I think everyone is a little bit. Um, so I'm in, I'm in love with my partner. Just because my partner sees this, don't worry. This is a hypothetical love that has nothing on the real love that we share. But you know, you get to have your wee crushes, and I think that. Probably, I think Debbie Harry would be up there. I actually really think that, um, aside from the kind of stupid juvenile reasons, I think that like to speak to someone who had such a prominent career through such a long period of time in, in rock music, who is so iconic, would just be totally fascinating. Um, really, really like interesting. I think the people that, in fact, oh man, Kendrick Lamar's up there. As well, I totally forgot about Kendrick Lamar. I don't, I don't mind having a a few extra. Can I, can I, can I, can I get a like a fold out chair out the garage for Kendrick that, Lamar? My, my last guest <laughs> only picked two, so so we've so, got space for a few more. I... Kendrick Kendrick Lamar would be, I think, the person who would be the greatest living artist. Like that's at the top of their game. There's obviously people who are still making stuff that were previously unbelievable, but. Right now, the best person in the world that's making music is Kendrick Lamar, and I think that Kendrick Lamar is, just seems like an absolutely fascinating 
guy who's just properly like I just would like to pick his brain about why, why, how did you come up with this? Why did you make that decision? What were you thinking about when this happened? What did you do when that happened? Mm-hmm. And I would think I could spend the whole day just talking to him about how he makes music and how he writes, particularly lyrics. Like I think that the lyrics, he's the best lyric writer I think that maybe has ever existed in the planet. Bob Dylan obviously has probably got something to say about that, as do a few other people, but dear God, Ken Lamar's crazy. So yeah, uh, Billy Bragg, Nina Simone, Debbie Harry, Jarvis Cocker, and Kendrick Lamar. Brilliant. No bad, is it? Brilliant. <laughs> what I do with this is like every fifty episodes, this is season two. So after the, the first fifty episodes, I compiled a league table, um, which John Lennon fucking wanted to be be about you know, I, I, I didn't think dead. I mean, I, Nina Simone isn't here anymore. I think all the rest of mine are are are, are alive. John Lennon's a great choice. You know what I mean? I, I, it's like it's like saying your favorite bands, the Beatles. I get uh-huh. it. I get it. So I mean, all all those choices. I mean, I, I don't think Billy Bragg's ever been picked. I don't think Jarvis Cocker's ever been picked. So it, it's nice to have yeah choices and Kendrick Lamar and then there's the, the next them. question what I'm cooking them because I love cooking so this is a this is a very big this was a very big consideration for me mm-hmm. so not sure if anyone's vegetarian on that one but you're always better going down the middle we, we dinner parties and making sure that everybody can eat so I think I'm going to be relatively boring but with an emphasis on like high quality as opposed to creativity I think I'm making like a really good marinara sauce um, which San Marzano tomatoes, fresh basil, fresh oregano, dried basil and dried oregano, good olive oil, nice wine, uh, salt and pepper, and then really nice garlic, shallots instead of onions for a wee bit of extra sweetness, mm-hmm. and then I'm going freshly made pasta to, to just make it a wee bit. So, so I'd make my own, I'd probably make my own conchigli, see the ones that are really like shells. Aha, uh-huh. lovely. Just get, get, get them, get that in. Parmesan over the top. Well, parmesan isn't veggie actually. Optional parmesan in case in case anyone who isn't veggie wants a bit. Um, but yeah, that 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 would be the best vegetarian meal that I can make. And I think that there's fewer greater joys in life than just like really good, simply made Italian food. Brilliant, absolute pleasure having you in. Brilliant. Right back at you, mate. Lovely chat. I had a really good time. Um, I'd absolute pleasure, mate. Obviously, I'll post all the links to your um Facebook, your yeah. Instagram, your website, and all that. Uh, and a wee link to the album. But I every day go out and get Declan Welsh and the Decadent West their new album too, which is out Friday twenty seventh of October. Thanks, well, man. Cheers. Take care. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Time for Heroes podcast. If you would like to get in touch, the best way is on the Facebook page, Time for Heroes podcast, or on Instagram at Time for Heroes podcast, or Twitter at Time for Heroes P1, or drop me an email at Time for Heroes pod at gmail.com You'll find Time for Heroes on all podcast platforms including Spotify, Apple, Google and Amazon. Please leave a review where you can, share with others and more importantly, enjoy. Enjoy.